For all the attention that Christmas receives, it seems a bit abrupt to halt our celebrations of Jesus' birth. Our poinsettias still pepper our church, but the Christmas trees have been taken down. It seems all a little abrupt, but in reality, the story of Jesus' beginnings are such a small part of the Gospel of Matthew that your clergy start getting a bit anxious to move along to the rest of the story in these precious few weeks between now and Easter morning. So, after Jesus' birth and a visit from the three magi and some turbulent time spent as refugees in Egypt, Jesus' family returns to Nazareth and the film cuts unceremoniously from Jesus as a child to Jesus as an adult. There is no growing up montage with clips of him as a teenager or a young adult. There is no video footage of Jesus learning how to ride a bicycle or photo evidence of him uh, graduating from high school. The Gospel of Matthew cuts directly from Jesus' infancy to Jesus' baptism as an adult with only the briefest backstory on his cousin, John the Baptist, who presides at this earth-shattering event. So listen now, for God, hear with us as we listen to this ancient story from the bank of the Jordan River. At that time, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River so that John would baptize him. John tried to stop him and said, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you, Jesus, come to me? But Jesus answered, Allow me to be baptized now. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So John agreed to baptize Jesus. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There once was a man who was skeptical about traveling to the Holy Lands. But upon opportunity to go there with his 17-year-old son, they packed their bags and he ventured forth. Growing up Pentecostal, his family never had really recognized any specific place as holy. They believed all places were made holy by God. A storefront church and a cathedral have equal measure of divine presence, he thought, and praying at the threshold of your bedroom window, looking out into the stars, can bring you just as near to the Holy Spirit, he thought, as praying in a pew. And anyway, he said, visiting these so-called sacred places always seemed to come with their own set of burdens. When he and his son visited the site of Jesus' crucifixion, for example, He noticed that the place was run by a couple of argumentative monks 
whose quarrels unleashed something approaching profanity and blasphemy in a place that might otherwise hope to convey Jesus' message of reconciliation. And each so-called sacred place in the Holy Lands along the path of Jesus sought to outdo the next with their inescapable merchandise, selling Jesus to tourists instead of seeking Jesus out themselves. Yet, when he and his son visited Jesus' baptismal site, there was something more spiritual than commercial, more sacred than materialistic. It was an austere desert place with its own set of archaeological remains. It had a church and a prayer hall and a gracefully underpopulated pedestrian trail that meandered through the ancient tree line towards the Jordan River. Yes, the river was barely a trickle. Years of international fighting over water resources had diverted over 96% of the Jordan River's flow. And yes, the Jordan River was muddy and polluted with everything up to and including untreated sewage waters. But together, he and his son were moved. They were moved by the knowledge that here along the river, so close to the shores of the Dead Sea, that lowest point on the surface of the earth, the ministry of the one who was to reunite heaven and earth began. There at that sacred place, Jesus' ministry began. Have you been there to Jesus' baptismal site? I've never, I've never been, so I wonder, is, is it true? Is there something there at the riverbank of the Jordan that connects you to heaven and earth? Did you know that throughout the centuries, hermits, monks living solitary lives, carved out dwelling places there upon the riverbank, hoping that just by being there at the Jordan River, at that ancient meeting place of heaven and earth, that God might draw near to them. Did your encounter there at the Jordan River with God shift and move too under the power of that river? I've never been to the Jordan River, but I've always felt called to rivers, any body of water, really. My grandfather's farm had a, a river woven through it. I went to college on a cliff overlooking the Ohio River, and I've always been fascinated by that strange feat of engineering that Chicago participated in a few decades ago that reversed the flow of our own river. Each of these rivers and many others serve to ground me spiritually in some way, connect me to the God whose spirit flows there at the Jordan River and flows through us here. This year, or really last year, 2016, surprisingly, pop, pop culture made room for the power of rivers, even a river-powered theology, with a song called River by Leon Bridges. Leon Bridges, a Texas-born former dishwasher turned Grammy nominee, is 
proud of his musical career, mostly because he's been able to pay off his mother's debt with the money he's made singing a Sam Cooke and Otis Redding-inspired Memphis soul gospel fusion. I saw him perform about 18 months ago at the Green Mill, which, if you've been there, even packed to the gills can barely fit 100 people. But now, Leon Bridges is even on Obama's Spotify list as one of his favorite songs after Leon was invited to play at the White House earlier this year. His was one of those rocket-fast trips to the top of the charts, and if you ask me, he probably will, or at least should, win a Grammy for Best Music Video for his song called River. But, admittedly, he's up against Beyonce's formation video, so it's yet to be seen. While uh, his song is simply titled River, it doesn't take a trained theological eye to recognize the baptismal imagery that he's pointing towards. It's a hauntingly soulful song. It meanders itself river-like toward a chorus. The line says, In my darkness I remember, Mama's words recur to me. Surrender to the good Lord and he'll wipe your clean." clean. Take me to your river, I want to know. This song meanders ever closer to baptism, toward really a full immersion when he sings, Tip me into your smooth waters, I go in as a man with many crimes. Come up for air and my sins flow down the Jordan. Take me to your river. Take me to your river. I want to know. In the music video, the lyrics compete with images of himself driving down quite a different type of river. He's not driving along the trickling edge of the Jordan River, but instead he's, in, he's at the shore of the full over-industrialized Patapsco River in Baltimore maybe you've been there, lined with those enormous cranes that pull cargo off international container ships like Legos, the kind of things that you see when you're driving through Gary, Indiana. But then the video pans across to images of the riots that happened in Baltimore, the ones that unfolded in the wake of Freddie Gray's death in April 2015. You see a man using a bright orange traffic cone to beat through the window of a car. And then you see a group of women and children at dusk holding vigil with candlelight and balloons that fly up into the sky, followed by a group of people standing in a spring rainstorm. 
the kind of rain that echoes the washing clean of baptism, even in the midst of such chaos that they are experiencing there in Baltimore. You remember these riots, right? That White Sox-Orioles game, which was not quite canceled, but which was played in an entirely empty stadium devoid of fans, so as to prevent public violence in the midst of such uncertain racial and political tension. Now in the new year of 2017, the tensions haven't lessened so much since Baltimore, of course, They've just shifted and changed as we've sought to learn and understand and misunderstand and relearn and respond in our racially diverse country with our troubling racialized history and an ever-present hope for the future. Now, of course, we worry about Fort Lauderdale and Orlando and San Bernardino and Ferguson and Paris and many, many more places. And we worry and we hope when Leon Bridges paired his lyrics of baptism alongside the social discord of Baltimore, he underlined the very world into which Jesus was born on Christmas Day and into which Jesus was baptized today. A world for Jesus also fraught with injustice and violence, the kind of violence under which innocent children might be slaughtered at the hands of the Roman government, and Jesus might be crucified for the crime of preaching truth and love and hope. Somehow, that need for baptism, that longing for spiritual cleansing and renewal and a right path with God, comes within our personal lives, but also within this greater social context in which our own hope for a relationship with God spills over into our way of living in this weary world. But Leon Bridges was not originally seeking a social message. He was originally drawn to the way that gospel music historically used these river images to symbolize personal change and personal redemption, a turning towards a new way of life. The song came up for him out of the depths of his own spiritual experience at a time of real depression in his life. And he admits to this, that he sat in his garage trying to write a song that echoed that struggle of depression. He was stuck between multiple jobs, trying to support his mother. It seemed there was little way out for him. The only thing he could do was cling to his faith in God, he says, which led him again and again towards those images of baptism that led him to seek out God at the river. We, too, turn towards God in those moments, both in personal despair and in the wider social hope for change. His time of real depression is not far from our own. His experience is linked to ours whatever sorrow might bring us to seek God at the river. That Langston Hughes poem that we read, too, it unleashes this same uh, dichotomy of personal and prophetic narrative. Yes, Langston Hughes was only 17 when he wrote that poem, but as he crossed over the Mississippi by train that day, he saw below him a riverbank that really held more than just water. 
He himself knew the history of slavery that flowed up and down that river, both as a student of those barely bygone days and as the grandson of a woman who herself had served on the Underground Railroad. In fact, his grandfather died at Harper's Ferry trying to assist fugitive slaves, and Langston's grandmother so cherished the, the shawl that his grandfather was wearing the day he died that she would later wrap Langston up in it, in that still blood-covered shawl on cold winter nights. So Langston Hughes intimately knew the history of slavery. It was both personal and uh, social. That one, he knew that one of the worst fates that could befall a slave would be to be sold down the river, to be sold down the river to that large slave market in New Orleans, sent away from family to be worked to death on a cotton plantation. And he also knew of the legend of Abraham Lincoln, the one where Abraham Lincoln, as a young man, goes to New Orleans and witnesses a slave auction. And as the story goes, resolved at that moment to overthrow slavery. The Congo River and the Nile River, also both mentioned in this poem, have connotations of slavery themselves and exploitation by colonial powers. And yet, here in this poem, rivers are a comforting maternal presence. They evoke not just a history of suffering, but a history that's wider and deeper than that, a history of endurance and survival and achievement. Years later, inspired by Langston Hughes' poem about the Mississippi River, another poet takes all these rivers back to our spiritual home at the Jordan, saying, but Believers know that the old Mississippi, she travels across the seas down to the Jordan. Only muddy waters can scrub a soul clean. I like that line, only muddy waters can scrub a soul clean. Baptism, this poet is suggesting, is not just about something far-fetched, some idea of cleanliness that we might never reach, nor is it about standing in the right river at the right time, but that any muddy water can scrub a soul clean because God who met Jesus at the Jordan still meets us where we are and uses ordinary water and much more ordinary people to turn us towards the good that God is seeking in this world. Jesus' baptism in the muddy waters of the Jordan connect us across time and place to a God who reaches out to you at the frozen lake shore and the frozen riverbed here, and the God who reaches out to you in the pews and at your bedside windowsill, the God who reaches out to you in the garage of your despair or on the train ride that strikes inspiration. As the new year dawns and a wild future is again at our doorstep, we need Jesus' baptism just as, we, as much as we need his Christmas Day story of his birth. Yes, we might be grateful that the commercialized version of our faith so privileges Christmas and not baptism because manger scenes and crib sets are less messy and maybe a little more adorable and attractive than water-filled river scenes with 
mud and dirt and John the Baptist wearing his weird animal skins and feasting on locusts. That would make a weird uh, celebration. But this underrecognized Baptism Sunday offers us a chance to renew our relationship with God, both prophetically and personally. Like Leon Bridges, we call out to God, take me to the river. Like Langston Hughes, we stand, we long to stand with God at the edge of these ancient dusk, dusky rivers with our soul growing deep. And like the hermits who lived on the bank of the Jordan, we seek the meeting place of heaven and earth, where God might meet us, where God might find us, where God might shelter us, where God might call us by name, beloved and belonging. May it be so. Amen.